You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world. Here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, and I'm your host, Hanok Teller. This is episode number 35 of season two. We resume our normally scheduled program with a character episode for every fourth recording. We cannot focus more on character than by highlighting the life of the character paragon, Rabbi Yehuda Kellimer of Blessed Memory from West Hempstead, New York. His life is the subject of my forthcoming book, If Not Higher, that will be released imminently, Hanukkah 2023. It can be acquired via Feldheim.com, through my website, www.hanachteller.com, Amazon, and in Jewish bookstores. We're now about to begin a few-part series entitled The Rabbi Kellimer Challenge, which will be a drill to incorporate his sterling character. The title, if not higher. Yud Lamed Peretz, the Yiddish writer, wrote a story by that name, and it goes like this. There was a Litvak, meaning a person who had very little sympathy for the Hasidic world, who was appalled at the naivete of the Hasidim, who felt that their Rebbe, their leader, their spiritual leader, was a man of such a high plane, and they said always about him that he is such an angelic individual, then when it comes to say the penitential prayers of Slichot, which is right before Rosh Hashanah, he goes up to heaven to recite them. He said, give me a break, come on. He's a normal person. Don't assume he does these things, but he could not get through to them. So once and for all, pierced their bubble, he decided he's going to travel to the village of their rabbinic leader, their Rebbe, and explain to them and show to them and demonstrate to them that the Rebbe is not saying Slichos in the heavens. He's probably just lying in his bed. And so on the first day of Slichos, there he was, but the Rebbe wasn't there. He asked the Hasidim, tell me, where's the Rebbe? And they responded innocently, simply, of course, the Rebbe went to heaven to recite the penitential prayers. He couldn't believe his ears. And he decided once and for all, he has to just puncture this bubble. So the next day, very, very early in the morning, he hid outside the Rebbe's house, he laid in ambush, waiting to see where the Rebbe really was when he was sure he was spending his whole night in bed. Early, early in the morning, the stars were still sparkling and twinkling. The Rebbe walks out the front door, puts an axe over his shoulder and a ball of rope he puts on his hip. He walks outside. He approaches the forest and at a safe distance, this Litvak travels behind him. The Rebbe goes into the forest then stops in front of a tree which seems to fit his needs. He takes the axe and begins to fell the tree. Finally, the tree is managed to be knocked down. The Rebbe cuts up the tree into small pieces. He connects them all within his rope. And then he walks a different way out of the forest. The Litvak at a safe distance follows behind him. When the Rebbe gets to a road, he looks both ways to make sure no one is following him. No one sees him and then hurries across, scampers over to the home of a widow, places the wood on her doorstep, and then disappears. The Litvak is having a hard time digesting what he had just seen. 
It was early enough that point, it was well before sunrise, he walked in a synagogue, and the Hasidim turned to this Litvak and they said to him, what do you say about a Rebbe? Don't you believe he goes to say, Slichos in heaven? And the Litvak, admitting the truth, said, if not higher. These are all Rabbi Kellimer's stories. No matter what you will say, it's always, if not higher. On deeper inspection, the parable of the Misnagid of the Litvak and the Rebbe fails to do justice to Rabbi Kellimer. The point of the story is the championing of kindness, anonymous charity, and concern for the less fortunate over religious rights. Peretz was, after all, a secular humanist. But for Rabbi Kellimer, there was never a challenge, conflict, or need to prioritize between Menschlichkeit and Yiddishkeit. They were not just symbiotic in parts of the same, they were one and the very same. Rabbi Kellimer, the angel of benevolence, could not be separated from Rabbi Kellimer, the Gadol Torah, the Torah scholar. His every action broadcast how immersion in Torah is supposed to influence one's actions. Many have asked me why I wrote this book, and I do not have the most cogent or compelling or even logical answer. Indeed, this is the kind of work that I've been trying to get away from. Of course, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just trying to focus my writing on a different kind of audience and style. My only answer is that it sort of happened. But surely one thing that drew me toward it was my intrigue at the perplexing conundrum of the story from every angle. Every aspect of Rabbi Kellimer's life not only defies the odds, but totally misses the curve. Many great scholars studied in Jerusalem, but not even a handful earned the trust and esteem of Rav Yashiv. Many yeshiva boys recommend their comrades or even their chavrusas to date their sister. But how often does a roommate proclaim that he has the perfect match? And perhaps the greatest anomaly of all, ay, 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 is a Rosh Yeshiva caliber Godel accepting the position of a young Israel rabbi. Young Israel of West Hempstead is the position that Rabbi Kellimer is most famous for, holding that pulpit for nearly four decades. But he was also a rabbi in Young Israel Brookline for ten years, and that was also very unusual. They say that in Young Israel Brookline there are more PhDs than in Harvard and MIT combined. Of course, that's a great exaggeration, but it is reflective of the brain trust prevalent among Young Israel Brookline's membership. Story goes, I don't know if this is accurate or just or just a rumor, that in the application form for membership in Young Israel Brookline, before your name, there it says doctor, and you just fill in your name. Maybe after already close to six, seven minutes of talking, it would be appropriate to finally begin the story at the very beginning. The beginning goes like this. Rabbi Kellimer was born in 1946. That wasn't the most auspicious time in America to raise an Adam Gadol. It was time of what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation. Rabbi Kellimer was statistically a baby boomer. Just one year earlier, more than 12 million American men and women took off their uniforms and rejoined civilian life as America attempted to recover from World War II. The lives of young men and women changed inexorably. 
The old rules of gender roles and expectations had altered radically in the working world. Not only was Rosie the Riveter an iconic picture everywhere, but her image was rendered by Norman Rockwell to look like Isaiah in Michelangelo's painting in the Sistine Chapel. It was a new era of optimism and prosperity, not the most conducive time to raise a future Gretel Bistro. The focus of America in the 1950s was also not all that favorable to encourage a man to commit to all-day Torah study. What were on people's minds? Well, in the 1950s, Joe DiMaggio had not yet retired from baseball. A new franchise began in Illinois called McDonald's. The craze of America was the hula hoop, and the heartthrob of America, a name I'm not so crazy about mentioning, but if you know anatomy, it rhymes with pelvis. Now, Rabbi Kellimer's possibility of becoming a great Torah scholar just would not have happened where the family originated in Miami, and then they moved west to Los Angeles. But Rabbi Kellimer's older brother, Yisrael, realized his mission in life was to get his younger brother, Yehuda, into yeshiva. How is it going to do this? Well, first of all, it's not going to happen in Los Angeles. The large, thriving, flourishing Los Angeles Jewish community in the 1950s was really, really in its very beginning diapers. He realized it could only happen if he could get his brother to New York. Once he'd get him to New York, then he could channel him to yeshiva. But how, but how, but how? Could he arrange a transcontinental trip when he had not the means and the boy's parents were not interested. You saw Kellimer hit upon a scheme that was as harebrained as it was ambitious. His brother Yehuda was a ninth grader. And Yisrael, the older brother, learned that there was a Chidona Tanakh competition, a competition about knowing expertise and all the books of the Bible of Tanakh. And whoever would win the West Side Chidona Tanakh the quiz of the Bible, would then be sent all expenses to New York for the finals. Yisrael was re realized, he was convinced, that if he could get his brother to enter the contest with that brilliant head, he would surely win. And indeed, this is what happened. So he won on the West Coast, and he was then sent to the East Coast. His brother then took charge and sent him off to the Ne Yisrael Yeshiva in Baltimore. Then came Passover recess, and it was... Not practical to send them all the way back to the West Coast, and no one was going to foot that bill. So instead, Yehuda Kalimer went to visit his grandparents in Detroit, Michigan. In Detroit, there was Rabbi, well, he's a teenager, we can't call him Rabbi yet, Avram Mordechai Isbi, very, very serious yeshiva student, who felt that Yehuda Kalimer's best potential would be realized not in Ney Yisrael in Baltimore, but in the Tells Yeshiva in Cleveland, Ohio. He took him by the hand, brought him onto the Greyhound bus, and took him, after the Passover vacation, to the Tel Yeshiva in Cleveland. As they arrive at the bus station in Cleveland, the whole town is abuzz over the big news that home run king Rocky Calavito from the loser Cleveland Indians was going to be traded to the arch-rival, the Detroit Tigers. This set off widespread mourning in Cleveland. As it was, their team were losers. Their only hope was Rocky Calavito, and now he's being traded to the enemy, the arch-rival. This is the kind of rivalry 
that makes the Hatfields and the McCoys appear to be bosom buddies. So Avram Mordechai Isbi escorts Yudah Kelimer to the Tel Yeshiva. They take a bus, and as the bus lets them off in front of the Tel Yeshiva, outside the boys are playing the national pastime. And Rabbi Isbi, again, calling him rabbi, is a little silly to a teenager, uh, Avram Mordechai Isbi points to Yehuda and he says to him, look, the fellow who just, whoa, hit a, knocked a home run out of the park, that was Yankel Cohn, who was the most famous of all the students in Tells. And this was like a bomb, not a bomb, a bomb, a B-A-L-M. It was a, it was a relief to Yehuda Kelimer. He had not totally bought into this whole yeshiva shtick at this point, and the fact that the best guy in yeshiva could also be such a great baseball player was soothing to him. And then, as soon as he walked into the base medrash, into the study hall of the Tel's yeshiva, it's as if he left black and white Kansas behind him. And when he pushed open that door to the yeshiva, the hullabaloo of the last four hours of that trip from Detroit to Cleveland were forever silenced. This sing-song of learning was goose-bump territory. It was then that Yehuda Kelimer heard the rumbling. It was a sound that he had known since boyhood, the sound the world makes when it pauses for that fleeting moment while a person decides whether to stand still or to leap forward. Yehuda Kelimer, with his Hasidic forebears pushing like wind at the back, took a running ascent upward and never ever came down. Tells would be his new home and the launching pad for a lifetime of uninterrupted Torah study. And decades before Rabbi Chaim Valkin, who become revered as one of the most outstanding Musa personalities of the generation, he would become Yehuda Kalimer's roommate, and then later on his brother-in-law, in the Tel Yeshiva. This took place in 1966, when Yehuda Kalimer married Chaim Valkin's sister, Rachi Valkin, the daughter of the famed Rabbi Shmuel Valkin, scion of the Lithuanian rabbinic dynasty, and their marriage took place in New York. Directly after their marriage, for reasons that really aren't all that clear, the Kelimers decided to make a nearly unprecedented trip to Israel so that Yehuda could learn in the Mir Yeshiva at the feet of Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz and ultimately sit side by side with Rabbi El Yashiv. This was in 1966, when the popular neighborhoods near the Mir Yeshiva, such as Arze Habira, Ramat Eshkol, and Sanadrim Murchevet, did not even exist, nor were they even under Israeli sovereignty. The early years of the Kelimer couple were plagued by financial hardship and consequential instability. They viewed this as the least of their problems, as they were both such spiritually inclined individuals that finances played the smallest role in their quality of life but it was still a problem. Thus began, and factually also ended, Yehuda Kelimer's ephemeral entrepreneurial career. In those days in Israel, toilet paper and aluminum foil were in short supply. Thus, 101 economics made it in high demand. Yehuda reasoned that if he could acquire these items, he could relieve some of the efficiency and make some lira, as Israeli currency was called at the time, on the side. The innovation of Kelimer Keynesian business plan was that it had eluded the Ministry of Industry and Finance and other more seasoned entrepreneurs was his unique method of importation. Yudah's father-in-law, Rabbi Shmuel Valkin, was in charge of the Hashgacha, meaning the Kashrush supervision, 
on the Greek line. This entailed locating mashgichim, kasher supervisors, for the voyages. There was no more cost-effective way for a bacher, for a single boy, to travel to Israel or to return back to America than accepting the position of being a kasher supervisor on the ship. The pay was nil, but so was the car fare. Part of the package for the youthful supervisor was to transport toilet paper for Yehuda Kelimer. There was no weight or space limitation, and it entailed nominal imposition. The plan was a decent one, but it still curtailed Yehuda's entrepreneurial prospects when he came to the realization that he did not have what it takes to be a businessman. In other words, he just wasn't a seicher. He was good at selling Yiddishkeit. He was superb at promoting greater religious commitment. His example from the rooftops to increase Torah study, but regarding gainful employment and getting others to actually pay for what he was selling, he was a failure. Therefore, the Kelimers returned to America, and Rabbi Kelimer actually landed the position of being a rabbi at Young Israel of Brookline. To say that this was a long shot is criminal levels of understatement. As we've already explained, the young Israel of Brookline was exceptionally academic, and Rabbi Kelimer's stellar yeshiva qualifications did not register with the congregants so ensconced in the world of academia. And as we said, even rumor had it that to apply on the shul application, you had to have doctor before your name. The previous rabbi before Rabbi Kelimer was Rabbi Saul Berman whose previous pulpit was in Berkeley. Rabbi Berman's CV reads like that of a premier lawyer, with scarcely mention of yeshiva education other than yeshiva university from where he was ordained. After a decade in Boston, Rabbi Kellimer accepted the position of becoming rabbi of young Israel of West Hempstead, Long Island. His installation was graced by the presence of many, 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 many speakers, and it can actually be viewed on YouTube if you have a spare 14 and a half hours. From what I could tell, virtually the only person who did not speak at that installation was the Assistant Director of Property Assessment and Appeal for Nassau County. Rabbi Kellerman's proficiency in halacha was legion. No matter what you asked, he knew the answer without hesitation. And just to give an example, during his intercession from veterinary school, Dr. Dani Zivatowski, who is the brother of Rabbi Ari Zivotovsky of Jerusalem Passport fame, and ultimately, Dr. Dani Zivotovsky was a large animal veterinarian. Among his clients were the Belmont Racetrack. And we're ready to go for this tremendous Belmont stage. Everybody's in line, and they're off. Looks like the early league goes to Mike. Also among his clients were the Ringling Brothers Circus when they were in New York. And when he came home to visit West Hempstead from intercession from college, it presented an opportunity to discuss some of the halachic dilemmas he faced regarding his instruction in neutering. One would imagine that this is not a facet of halacha that a posek halachic ruler confronts very often. Esoteric, abstruse, arcane, cryptic, and obscure topics in halacha. Did I mention esoteric? But Rabbi Kelimer, without a he- second's hesitation, replied, See the pis chuva on Evan Ezra Simon Hay, Sif Cotton, dot, dot, dot. A posek compton, every aspect of Shulchan Aruch, every aspect of the code of Jewish law, is an asset bestowed very sparingly upon the Jewish people, and commensurately very, very well valued. Many people, however, turn to Rabbi Kelimer not just because of his proficiency, because he always knew precisely whom he was addressing, and perceived what they needed without 
tampering with halacha. Rabbi Kellimer had the uncanny sense of, of when to be firm while still being sensitive and attentive. And like no other, he had the magic touch to make, as Rabbi J.J. Schachter called it, to make a psak, a ruling, work. Because so many people called with their shilas, with their halacha questions, and the number was always increasing, it was hard to get through at a reasonable hour. I should mention that factually Rabbi Kellermit was just not a person that you spoke to at a run-of-the-mill seven in the evening, for example. So Rabbi Schachter, as many others, would set their alarm for one o'clock in the morning to call Rabbi Kellermer. Rabbi Kellermer carried, on average, about four phones in his pockets, always fumbling to see which one was ringing. The reason that he had so many phones was because he invariably lost one, or he lost its charger, so he'd pick up another one, and then another one, and then another one. These were cheap burner phones, and just as one phone was coming out of service, another one was newly being commissioned. And as he would get on and off trains regularly, it resulted in Rabbi Kellermer losing or misplacing phones. Indeed, the lost and found department at Penn Station was practically on a first-name basis with Rabbi Kellermer. The rabbis was once on an Amtrak train to Washington, D.C., and with that time, he had all of his phones charging as he was answering phone calls one after another by people calling him to ask them questions. At the, at the end of the ride, a passenger who was totally agog, a Twitter, escaped, you know, just slack-jawed it, incredulity at him on the phone the entire time. He, she asked him, are you my senator? Calling the rabbi, even for his children, often entailed punching a battery of numbers. Only the Rebbitson usually was up to date and up to the hour as to the most contemporary number. Now, Rabbi Kellimer, who was pretty infamous for his adverse driving skills was once pulled over by a police officer when he was driving, and even Rabbi Kellimer could not imagine what infraction he was violating. He wasn't talking on the phone. He was in the correct lane. He was driving under the speed limit. The cop explained that he had saw so many wires on the back dash from his collection of so many phones that it aroused his suspicions. Thank you for listening, and we will resume this Rabbi Kellimer story in an Four more episodes, going back to our regular cycle of three about the early struggle to build the state of Israel, and every fourth episode is regarding character. I'll see you in two weeks with our coming episode. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes a never-fail approach how to inculcate good character. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode, and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com you can find more details about this show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you will receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced price of all Hanoch Tele products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Tele from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.